0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. I've talked a bit on the show in the past about the domestication of our major crops, but not about how wild animals became tame livestock. And now's the time to fix that, at least for chickens, sheep and for cattle. Olivier Annot is a principal scientist with the International Livestock Research Institute based in Ethiopia, and a professor of genetics at the University of Nottingham in England. He's an expert on working out the distant evolutionary history of animals by looking at their DNA. The central idea is that the more different two samples of DNA are, the more time has passed since they shared a single common ancestor. In some cases, including humans, the DNA can even be extracted from ancient bones, which gives you a firm archaeological date. But not, alas, for chickens. For chicken it's
1: very difficult to actually find all bones of chicken and to examine those, because a chicken is actually uh, the bones of a bird, so let's put it in that way, are very fragile and often are not being recovered properly in uh, um, archaeological remains. Another challenge is that, uh, of course, chicken belonging to uh, a very uh, family of birds, uh, uh, which include a lot of other species, including pheasant. Sometimes uh, chicken bones, unless they are very well preserved, are very difficult simply to identify. So... For, for the geneticist who is interested in the domestication of the chicken, chicken bones, the, the study, the DNA study of chicken bones, could in theory provide information, but the difficulty is to get the sample. It's not easy. So, what we have to rely then in is on what we have today.
0: What we have today is modern DNA. And what's true of ancient DNA is also true of modern DNA. The more similar, the more closely related. As well as that, you'll also find the greatest diversity among breeds close to where the species was first domesticated, because that's where it's been evolving for the longest time. And on that basis, two places were competing to be the ancestral home of the chicken, the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia. Anat was part of a huge group of colleagues who looked closely but modern DNA from hundreds of chicken breeds and wild jungle fowl to try and decide between the two competing locations for chicken domestication.
1: The latest story, though, coming off from actually a recent publication published in 2020, it seems that the region of domestication, the first region of domestication, was actually in Southeast Asia. They were able to actually show that in fact, all the chicken, the domestic chicken, have their ancestry from essentially a subspecies of chicken of wild chicken, which which is today living in South, Southeast Asia. Can you be more precise? I mean, Southeast Asia is huge. Um... You're right. You're right. Well, you can't pinpoint exactly the one place, and this. But uh, it's, it's, it's an area, uh, so we're talking about South West China, Burma, Thailand, somewhere like, somewhere there. And then from there, domestic chicken dispersed in, in, in where we found it today. <laughs> no, but the story is not as simple as that, of course, because this is the beginning. But then what's happened? chicken travel like other livestock species that travel with humans and then when they travel
0: they met other wild species of chicken that was going to be my question is you know as they, as they move around there are still jungle fowl there and presumably uh, a jungle fowl rooster might get access to a domesticated chicken and, and maybe they would have eggs and chicks together exactly and indeed it happens
1: the results so far indicate is that when the, 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 the chicken from Southeast Asia arrive on the Indian continent, well, they cross with the white chicken from the Indian subcontinent. Uh-huh. So, in other words, the chicken from Europe, for example, they do have this ancestry from Southeast Asia, but it also carries
0: with them an ancestry from the Indian subcontinent. So that's settled for now. Chickens crossed the road to domestication in western China, Burma, and Thailand, about six or 7,000 years ago, but they also picked up a lot of genetic diversity from birds in India and elsewhere before spreading further afield. But there's one abiding mystery in that spread. There are chickens on the west coast of South America. And some people have said that they travelled east across the Pacific from Asia rather than westward three-quarters of the way around the world via Europe and Columbus. The problem is that the archaeological dates for chicken bones found in Chile just aren't that conclusive. So can the DNA help us there?
1: I've been involved in a study where we actually have uh, elucidate. Uh, the genetic control of the blue eggs in, in, in chicken.
0: Oh, yeah, there's Ara- Araucana, yeah.
1: Yeah, the Araucana. The Araucana is a typical, uh, well, it's a, it's a South American birds from uh, the Araucana people, and it's laying blue eggs. And the interesting thing is that there are other birds, other chicken. Uh, which are laying green eggs, but in fact green is simply the superposition of blue uh, against uh, brown. So they are laying green eggs and they are found in China. So if we could show that actually the genetic control of these uh, phenotypes is identical between the birds of Asia and the birds of America, uh, maybe we have here, we will have here an argument that indeed they could have been introduced, the South American one, from uh, Asia. So we investigate that, and while we did identify the genetic controller, and we did identify that uh, it's uh, the the same uh, uh, gene, which is most likely involved in both cases, it's not the same mutation. So bad luck. So so that doesn't solve the problem either. And that the Polynesian uh, people were actually the one who dispersed the chicken all across the Polynesian island. It's not at all impossible that indeed, first they visited uh, the coastal area of South America, and then they brought chicken with them before the Europeans started to settle down on that part of the continent. So it's perfectly possible. And but we do not have yet undisputable evidence for it.
0: One day we may know for sure. But anyway, leaving chickens there in Chile, let's turn to sheep. They were domesticated in the Fertile Crescent, in the Near East, the same area as wheat, barley, chickpeas and so on. So what's the story there? And the sheep's story
1: is... Uh, uh, if you look to the distribution of the, the wild sheep, you find them not as widely distributed than the, the chicken, but nevertheless, in, in the Middle East, at least, quite a large distribution. To pinpoint exactly the domestication area is difficult, and possibly there wasn't really a single one, but it could have been happening in a very quite broad geographic area in the Zagos Mountain or something, something What, of course, is interesting about sheep is that if you look to date morphologically, you do find a huge diversity uh, amongst the sheep. And uh, most likely that the first domestic sheep were quite different in this this respect. They were what we call hair sheep. And that uh, wool sheep were probably developed later. And then even later, likely, you had another type of sheep that what we
0: call the, the fat tail sheep. I'll come back to fat-tailed sheep in a minute, but wool, for the record, keeps growing, unlike hair, which tends to stop at a characteristic length. Wool fibres are also slightly crimped, which makes them easier to spin into yarn, and also helps them to trap an insulating layer of air. The first sheep, about 12,000 years ago, were hair sheep, raised mostly for meat and milk. People then began to select woolly sheep about 8,000 years ago, using the wool to weave clothing and rugs. And fat-tailed sheep show up around 5,000 years ago, still in the Fertile Crescent. They have large deposits of fat around the tail and hindquarters, rather like a camel's hump. The tail fat is apparently absolutely delicious, which may be why these breeds were first selected although it probably also helps them to survive in harsh desert conditions. Now, of course, sheep are found all over the world, including some very cold spots like the Tibetan highlands. Again, that's partly thanks to their genetic diversity and partly thanks to other sheep that they encountered along the way.
1: It is actually not impossible that they manage uh, to occupy this area like... Uh the Tibetan island, uh, by crossing with some other species of sheep. As in chicken, you do have several uh, species of sheep. And the crossing of these sheep, uh, of the domestic sheep of the Near East, with some local uh, or wild species of sheep may have broad diversity, which at the end uh, has made them more
0: adaptable. And its crossing that underpins our final example of livestock domestication, cattle. Unlike chicken, where there was probably a single domestication event, and sheep, where there may have been many, but they all took place in roughly the same area, cattle were different.
1: In the case of cattle, we do have at least two main centres of domestication. One centre of domestication was in the Near East, and this is where all taurine cattle come from, the cattle without a hump. And another centre of domestication was on the Indian subcontinent, and this is where the zebu cattle come from, the humped cattle.
0: And the taurine cattle of the Near East without a hump, and the zebu cattle of India with a hump, were both domesticated from the wild cattle, or aurochs. But the two groups, in India and the Near East, separated around half a million years ago, so they were already quite different. But it's in Africa that the domestic history of cattle becomes really interesting, because there are at least two ways cattle could have got there, by land, walking into Egypt, and by sea, by boat, from India. The first cattle, which actually
1: arrived on the African continent, were what we call of the toran cattle, they were cattle without a hump. If today uh, you have the chance to go to the Sahara and consider the the rock painting, the rock carving, you will see that this you will see cattle, and you will see that these cattle do not have a hump. Uh, uh, So so these animals moved on. They moved on. They reach West Africa, and they reach uh, also East Africa, but in a in a patchy way, if you want. was not actually uh, uh, an occupation everywhere. And for this to happen, to have the today uh, landscape of African pastoralists as we say today in Africa, where we do have cattle nearly everywhere, uh, you had to wait for the arrival of the second type of cattle, uh, which is uh, the one coming from Asia, the zebra cattle. And This one reached Africa, not to Egypt, but to an arrival. The entry point was really the Horn of Africa. So most likely uh, uh, they came uh, by boat, essentially uh, uh, around the 7th century AD. Wow, that's very recent. That's very recent. There may have been some uh, which actually came earlier than that. But the main wave only started at the 7th century AD, probably, at the time of the development of the Swahili civilization in the coast of East Africa. What we know and recently discovered, which will be published later, is that, in fact, uh, probably 1,000 years ago, that there has been an intensive crossing between this Asian zebra cattle and African tourite. Uh, and you had a cross between an animal from the East with an animal from the Indian subcontinent. And, of course, if you look at the geographic position of India, it's actually much more southern uh, uh, than the East. And so the cattle from India, when they came to Africa, what they did, they brought with them already adaptation for a much hotter, warmer, and tropical climate, if you want than the cattle from the Middle East. And that, the mix, the combination of the two, the combination from the African Turin, who being the first one on the African continent, had more time to adapt to the local African disease, with the zebu from Asia, which brought with them the adaptation to a much hotter and, uh, and sometimes drier environment. The combination of the two, the cross, allowed them this animal to occupy new land on the African continent. This crossing explains uh, the present-day success of African pastoralists in nearly every corner of the
0: continent. When you think of this, you think of, of nomadic people, essentially, walking around with their cattle. Those cattle are a cross between the Taurine cattle from the Near East and the the Zebu cattle from India. And it's the cross itself that makes them so good at, at, at this sort of pastoralism.
1: Exactly. That's what we we
0: we, we, we have discovered. That's quite a recent discovery. But Olivia, this is only a thousand years ago, even with artificial selection, um you have this idea, I have this idea that it, it's, it's so slow. And yet, what you seem to be saying is that um, these cattle, after they started crossing them effectively, they, they really took over.
1: You're right in your observation. It, it actually happened very quickly. No, you have to ask yourself why. The reason why it happened very quickly is because the animal which crosses had a role the right adaptation before there are. You know what I mean? In other words, what nature did is actually selected, already present useful diversity. And only what you had to do, you didn't have to invent anything, new. What you had to do is to put the piece of the puzzle in the right place, if you want. If you don't have the right piece of the puzzle in the right place, you basically don't survive it's selection okay and if you are not fit well you will not survive you will not reproduce so at the end only a few uh, will actually have the right combination and they are the ones who are going to take over
0: so then the question is with these breeds that you see around the world like the black and white holstein cows or um, some of the chicken breeds that are very intensively selected, where they're almost genetically uniform, is there a danger then that, that they could be vulnerable to, to changes in the environment? Or will we always be able to, to protect them?
1: Yes, there is a danger that actually we arrive to a dead hand in terms of adaptability. And the reason is very simple. If you put an animal in in an environment uh, like Africa, and and even in in Europe in the past, human selection, but also uh, climatic selection, uh, disease and so on, were all part of the same package. Uh, When it's part of the same package, well, uh, you have to be good on everything. You do maintain diversity for everything to a certain level. When you have in mind only a single goal in mind, you want to improve milk production and so on and you decide that all the other traits, like disease resistance, climatic resistance or even fertility, you decide that you will handle that to management you you only concentrate genetically on one trait, you obviously lose the other genetics which would have made you uh, adaptable and you make survive in a Less managed or unmanaged environment, so the Austrian Friesian produce well, they produce a lot, but in a completely artificial management system. So this animal, when you airlift it in an African context, they don't survive unless you bring with you the management system of Europe, and this is not sustainable. If we think about now the future, and I think it's very important to think about uh, the future, <laughs> you know, we are facing a uh, an environmental crisis is the, the COVID-19 but But the environmental crisis are not just the COVID-19. The environmental crisis are climatic change. Uh, the environmental crisis that we have to, to face is also to fit uh, uh, an increasing population. But we have to do all of that sustainably. Whatever direction we decide to take for society, it has to be a sustainable direction. And this is where diversity come into play again. Now, if you, you think about you know, the diversity found in, in African livestock, what do you have? You do have animals, which actually may not be as good in terms of producing food, uh, or in terms of quantity, uh, meat, eggs, or actually milk, than the, the breeds from the commercial sector. But these animals survive with a minimum input. They survive, they reproduce, and they actually, uh, in a certain sense, fulfill the needs of the people for, for, for centuries. So what, what what's the solution here? Well, the solution in terms of cattle is basically against crossing, in fact. In the past, what has made successful and what has allowed cattle pastoralism to uh, disperse and to, uh, to occupy a large portion of the African continent was this crossbreeding with Toran and Zebi. For the future, what are we going to address this issue of producing for more food and in a sustainable way? It will most likely be the same. We are able now to cross, if you want, this today African cattle with this exotic commercial breed. And the two together which probably would be the solution for the future for the African continent.
0: Olivier Annot of the International Livestock Research Institute and Nottingham University. I do think this kind of research using modern DNA to peer back in time sometimes borders on the magical. But as we heard at the end there, It also offers powerful insights into a more sustainable future for African cattle as a source of valuable protein and nutrition to a rapidly growing population. I'll put links to some of the more recent academic papers in the show notes, along with one to a fascinating and lively discussion about fat-tailed sheep from some old friends of the podcast. And that will all be at eatthispodcast.com where you can also leave a comment, search the archives and sign up to become one of the show's supporters. You can also drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com and follow me on Twitter at eatpodcast and Instagram too at eatthispodcast. For now though, from me, Jeremy Chirfus and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.